Hey everyone, I'm Benjamin Minch, and this is my podcast, The Doctrinal Divorce. I'm a student at Biola University, and I'm also the teaching lead of a group of students on campus interested in spreading the love of Jesus and His kingdom to our Latter-day Saint friends. In this podcast, I'll be compiling weeks of past lessons and lectures that all talk about the Latter-day Saint and biblical doctrine from a Christian perspective. I hope you'll join me on this journey as we look through the doctrinal divorce between traditional biblical Christianity and the Latter-day Saint theology. With all that said, let's dive into the episode for this week. Today we're talking about the Trinity. Yeah, and so the Trinity, the Christian Trinity, uh, if you've been around Mormons, they call it the Godhead. Uh, It's a different thing than the Trinity, and we'll go over sort of the differences, uh, similarities maybe, if there is any, and sort of how the Mormons get to their doctrine, why they don't like the Trinity, and why we do like the Trinity. So um, there's going to be a lot of things that are like that I don't even understand because the Trinity is one of those doctrines that's very incomprehensible and people have worked on it for a long time and had questions about it and it still leaves people dumbfounded, but I think it should. So um, it was really interesting making this. There's a lot of cool things I learned, especially about like the development of the Trinity or the Godhead in Mormon doctrine. And so we got a slide on that in the halfway. So we'll talk about, so right off the bat, we'll start with the main difference, just to get that sort of out of the way. Um, these are pictures of how, I mean, when you search Mormon Godhead on Google, these are the ones they use on like their church website too. So you've got this one on the left, which shows like three guys. They all kind of look the same. Actually, I think they have different skin colors, but that's not the point. But <laughs> and then the one on the right, you've got two guys that look the same, and then one that's just kind of like a. This is probably more of an older version because you'll see when we talk about uh, the transformation of the Godhead, um, the Holy Spirit in this one isn't really like the other two because he's kind of lower, but they've they've given him position recently. So, so yeah, the main main difference uh, between us and them when it occurs when it regards the Trinity is. Um, the Trinity, uh, we believe, are of one substance, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Latter-day Saints believe that they are three physically separate beings, um, but the way that they're united to each other is love, purpose, and will. And that's what you'll find on their website. Uh, those are kind of the squishy terms that they'll use. Like, they're three separate beings, but they're united. And what we mean by united is united in purpose. Like, they're all doing the same thing. Uh, they all love each other, I, I guess. That's what the love is. And they all have like the same will, like they're all carrying out the same plan on earth. Um, so that's more generally what they would refer to as their Godhead. Um, we're going to look at the three affirmations just to kind of split it up into its parts. Um, to, we'll contrast this later to the affirmations of the more of the Christian Trinity. Uh, and we'll see similarities and differences in those. So... Um, so affirmation one, we've got God, the father, Jesus, and the Holy spirit. Well, they'll call it the Holy ghost are three separate persons. Um, so I think you'll see later that we can affirm that one. Um, and number two, they, they would affirm that there's only one God I put the dot, dot, dot head because they sort of think of them all as like, I don't know. They'd say, like, if you ask a Mormon, like, Oh, do you believe in one God? They'd probably say yes. But then if you push them on it hard enough, it's really more like three gods, and we'll go into a little bit of why that is. Um, and so uh, another affirmation, they're united only in purpose, not essence. So um, they all do not share the same 
sort of deity, and this sort of bleeds into what they believe about Jesus, that he was once a man, just like us, and had really no deity, uh, and then he actually became a god by living a perfect life. And so uh, that's why they can say that only united in purpose and not essence, because while they are all gods, they're not all like the same god, if that makes sense. Uh, some interesting evolution of Mormon thought in this uh, topic. Um, so I got this from from a book that I was reading about the evolution of Mormon thought. Um, and so we've got the original Book of Mormon, 1830. Actually, I mean, Sam, you read it this summer with me. It's actually very Trinitarian, I think, on the base effort. Um, there's a lot of passages, as we'll soon see, that actually probably more explicitly, I think most definitely more explicitly, uh, are very Trinitarian uh, as opposed to the Bible even, um, I think. And so if you're just reading the Book of Mormon and had no clue what to believe about the Godhead or the Trinity, you'd probably lean more towards the Trinity because it's just jam-packed right in there. But uh, this sort of took a turn. In 1834 to 835, we've got... Uh, we've got the father and the son are being distinguished from each other more in that they both have different bodies. This took place in like a in a speech Joseph Smith gave called the Lectures on Faith. And then they removed the Holy Spirit from the Godhead as a person. So they thought it was sort of like a force behind the Godhead, but it wasn't like a third person in the Godhead. Um, and so uh, in the 1840s, they actually, a lot of the Book of Mormon, if you look at the earliest Book of Mormon text, there's a lot more explicit uh, Trinitarian uh, verses in there, uh, talking about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one eternal God. Uh, and in the 1840s, they started to print later editions with some corrections to make it so it's less Trinitarian. So they would uh, add like the word is a eternal God. And so they'd like put an A in there to sort of denote that they're all different beings. Um, certain things like that. Um, if you really want to go into all the changes, uh, I have a giant book of it, just if you really want to know, but <laughs> I thought it might bore you just going through like crosses and word changes. So, um, and then we got 1841, we got the Godhead doctrine formed sort of this is like the birth of where they came up with the godhead and they've got the three this is where they kind of made the claim that they were three separate persons united in per purpose but not substance so they weren't all the same essence um kind of like um i don't know a good analogy for this but so you've got sort of like if you have three chickens they're all they're all a, like the essence of a chicken is a chicken um but um Let's say in the Mormon view, like you have a chicken, a duck, and then maybe an ostrich. So they all, I mean, none of those birds fly. All oh, ducks kind of fly. This this metaphor sucks, but um, but really, um, they're not the same essence. So um, we'll see when we get to the Trinity view. We'll, you'll see the differences between that. Um, and then we got 1844. Uh, Joseph Smith actually repudiates. Uh, which means to go against or disavow the Trinitarian view, insisting that there are three gods. And so this is sort of where they still are today. A lot of people like to call it tritheism because um, I don't know if how that would go over if you're talking to an LDS, um, but I think most of the Mormon scholars would say that their system is mostly similar to like what we'd call a tritheism. So there's like three gods, um, 
yeah, and they're all sort of different essences, but they all have the same purpose, the same will, they all love each other. So maybe like the three branches of government. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I think you could actually, that's actually a pretty good, pretty good analogy. So you've got like, I mean, the tasks don't necessarily line up, like God the Father isn't the one like just calling every shot. Uh, and then you've got like, Jesus doesn't write laws and things, but, but yeah, I think in a sense, like the spirit is sort of the power behind uh, what people do. Um, but this was interesting. This was actually new to me. I didn't really know about the evolution of the doctrine. Um, so it started out actually as a very Trinitarian thing, as we'll see. All right, we've got some verses here. Um, Trinity in the Book of Mormon. So if you didn't believe me that the Book of Mormon is very Trinitarian, uh, we've got some verses that we're going to read. So, um, and there's many more. This is just a, as many as I could fit on the slide. So Second uh, Nephi 31 says, Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and the only and true doctrine of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. And so sounds pretty Trinitarian to me. Um, Mosiah has a lot of these verses. I just took a few of them. Uh, and they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth, and thus flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father being one God. Uh, we got Mormon, which is a book in the Book of Mormon. It's pretty meta. Um, but yeah, so to sing ceaseless praise with the choirs above unto the Father and unto the Son and unto the Holy Ghost, which is one God. Um, and then even the testimony of the three witnesses, which um, in the, if, if you pick up a Book of Mormon in the front, there'll be this testimony with these people that witnessed Joseph Smith writing down the Book of Mormon. So even in their testimony, they admit to a Trinitarian view, um, saying that all honor be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, which is one God. Amen. So that's sort of at the end. Um, and then even into the Doctrine and Covenants, which was written even a little bit later, we still see this Trinitarian view, which it says, uh, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal, without end. Amen. So sort of like the similar to the testimony of the witnesses. So uh, yeah, so it's actually all over the Book of Mormon, not just in these five spots. Uh, there's probably at least 20 more passages I could have put up there. Um, so it's interesting. It was interesting to us when we were reading through it this summer that uh, like Trinity was more uh, explicit here than it even was in our own Bible. So um, just thought of it as an interesting thing. This is probably why I think Probably the most important slide. I don't know. And I actually didn't even have this in the PowerPoint until like 30 minutes ago. And it just struck me that, oh, whoa, I was like reading through some like random Joseph Smith quote. And it made sense. So um, so this is like the question of like, why do LDS reject the Trinity? Like it doesn't seem like very like, like if they just wanted to fit in and sort of trick people to their side. They definitely probably stick more mainstream uh, and really accept the Trinity. Um, it's like it doesn't seem like it's something that is so like damaging to all of their other doctrines. And so, uh, so really why do they reject the Trinity? And I think uh, one of the, the, main, the main root issue isn't really necessarily Trinity or Godhead, it's more comprehensibility versus incomprehensibility. And I think this quote by Joseph Smith uh, says it very well. Uh, he said, if you don't comprehend the character of God, then you don't comprehend yourself. And so this sort of all goes back to the belief um, we touched on a few weeks ago, talking about the Mormon belief that they will become like God one day. And so um, sort of the line of reasoning goes like, 
if God's incomprehensible, how can I ever be like him? Because I can't know what he's like to like try to work towards becoming uh, like him. And so, um, so if they, and the Trinity is a very, like, I will admit it's a very mysterious doctrine. Um, and that's probably the main, the main reason I've heard uh, among Mormons, um, both like both uh, high up and just like the everyday Mormon, like the Trinity is a very incomprehensible thing. And I don't really, I don't really understand the Trinity. So therefore I don't think that that can be the possible explanation because I think that the truth about God should be plain and self-evident or plain and precious as they'll call it. Um, and so many reject the Trinity based on such, just this lack of understandability. Um, and I think ultimately the root issue is um, becoming gods one day. And so um, but I wrote here, it's sort of a double standard of truth because a lot of them, when you push them, maybe like the pre-mortal life or even uh, like the pre-mortal existence, like what happened before uh, the world or even like what will celestial kingdom be like? They'll be like, oh, we don't know. That's like a sacred doctrine. Like we don't we don't know that. And so uh, there's a lot of mystery in their doctrines, too. Um, but I guess they look past that when determining whether they should accept the Trinity or not. Um, and also this point at the bottom, uh, just always important. I think I touched on it in the first ever lesson of this year. Uh, just remembering that Mormonism is a very American religion. Um, and in our American culture, we want to understand how everything works. And we really struggle to sit in tensions. Uh, and there's, quite frankly, a lot of tensions in the Bible that we have to sit in. And one of them is the Trinity. So, um, yeah, I can, I can definitely see um, from their perspective, I can definitely see how or why so many reject the Trinity. So, all right. So we looked at the LDS Trinity, uh, or Godhead. Um, I keep mixing them up because but now we're going to take a look at the historical Christian Trinity and um, I'm sure some of you have probably seen this picture before this is like a good one to like know how to sketch on a napkin because like at least I've been asked maybe like five or six times by an LDS like whoa what, what's this like trilogy or trinity you're talking about um, like they've never even heard the word before um, so that's how sheltered a lot of them are in Utah because there's a lot of like-minded uh, Mormons out there. And so some of them have never even heard of the Trinity before. And so I think uh, learning how to draw this on a napkin is sort of helpful. I think this is the most helpful picture that I've had. I mean, it's obviously not perfect because we can't fully comprehend the Trinity, but it's a pretty good. I think this is probably the best representation we have. So on uh, the image, you've got sort of God and that in the middle is the essence, um, sort of claim number three, that they're united in essence. And so that God is an essential thing. It's just part of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like what they're made out of sort of a thing. Um, but we also see that there's distinction. So the Father's not the Son, the Holy Spirit's not the Son, the Father's not the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. So, um, <clears throat> so the four affirmations of the Trinity are uh, there's only one God. And so, um, yeah, we see that throughout scripture. Um, only one, uh, only one, uh, only one God. And so uh, there are also three distinct persons in the Trinity. So you got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons are united in essence. 
uh, and the three persons are all equally God. So it's not like the Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit is down like off the screen somewhere. Or it's not like Father, Son, and then like, who's this Holy Spirit dude? I don't really know. And it's, they're all like up there. It's like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't have three hands, but they'd all be equal if I did. So, um, so yeah, so those are the four affirmations of the Trinity. And so how these are sort of different or similar to the Mormon ones, um, we definitely are similar sort of on one, although when you really push them, I think it's more like they would say three gods. Um, but um, the three distinct persons, we both agree that they are three distinct persons, um, but we disagree that they what they're united in. And so we'd say united in essence, they'd say united in purpose, will, and love. Um, and I, I think they might agree with number four, although historically they haven't, and they'd say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, kind of down there. But I don't really know where they would stand today on that. So um, how we're going to sort of talk about the Trinity uh, in the Bible. So I know it's really, it's it seems like a, a really, it could be a really easy task um, to just go to verses like, Genesis 1, 27, where it says, let us make man in our image. Uh, and you've also got ones where uh, God refers to himself uh, or talk, seems to be talking to more than one person. Uh, we could just go that route and just look like, see, look, Old Testament, Trinity, like QED. Um, but I'm not really going to take that route because, because one, I, there's lots of different interpretations for um, what the us language is talking about in the Old Testament. Uh, and I really, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it's not about the Trinity, but, um, but there is people that are, and so there's different views on that. So even if you, even if you take sort of that standpoint, it's sort of like a debated thing. And so that's not really the best, I guess, evidence that you could find in the Old Testament and new. And so, um, and I think like our Bible doesn't really give us like one verse. Uh, it really doesn't give us like it's like, oh, if we could just have one verse that just says, like, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are a trinity, and be like, oh, it'd be all great. Um, but the Bible's written in a way that it sort of makes us work for what we get out of it, and if you may, it makes sense. Um, so going to be tackling the trinity, maybe in a confusing manner, maybe not. I don't know. We're just going to go through the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament um, views of the trinity. Uh, a lot of people think that the Trinity was just something that happened in the New Testament and the Old Testament people didn't really have any conceptions for it. Um, but I hope to show that there was a lot of categ there was categories of thinking about God in the Old Testament that would uh, sort of match up with the Trinity today and sort of make it easier to accept the fact that Jesus was also God and who he claimed to be. So this is, I don't know if I can actually move this picture in my PowerPoint presentation, it was a 3D triangle, but now it's just 2D. So, <laughs> so I made this picture. Um, us is this flat plane. So we're sort of on a 2D plane. And if you can imagine, God is this three-dimensional object. And so whenever God interacts with our plane, since we're in 2D, um, I wish I had like an animation. I tried to find animations online and there was like no good ones uh, to use. So um, you just have to imagine it in your head. So you could just imagine this this 3D triangle is sort of spinning around 
and it goes and interacts with a point on the plane. And so like, what would we see if we're on the plane? We obviously won't see the three dimensional triangle because we're sort of flat and we'll only see like bits and pieces. Maybe we'll see like a point and maybe sometimes we'll see like two points, maybe three points, depending on how it's lined up. And so uh, I think that's sort of a good way of thinking about it. Um, God is sort of in this other dimension. Uh, he calls himself the great I am. He's this transcendent being. Uh, and so it sort of makes sense that when he interacts with our space-time existence, he's going to break our categories of how we define things sort of in 2D um, because he's sort of out there. So, yep, bear with me. This might be a little confusing, but we're just going to go right into the Old Testament. Uh, I call it the Hebrew Bible here. Um, this is what they would have as their Bible. Um, and so we're going to talk about different categories and how God does not fit them. Um, and how sort of they refer to different things and how God interacts and yeah, all that stuff. So we're going to start out with God's attributes and how his attributes don't really fit our categories that we have for him. And so uh, we're going to start out with wisdom. I know a lot of us would definitely ascribe God is very wise. Uh, he has infinite wisdom. And so um, that is both an attribute uh, used. I, um, yeah, so wisdom is both this thing that God has, like God is very wise. We read in Proverbs 3.19 that the Lord in wisdom founded the earth. He established the, the heavens in understanding. So we see God using his wisdom or his attribute in order to uh, build the earth. And then we've also got things like Proverbs 8, Proverbs 8, where wisdom is actually a person and a co-worker sort of in creation. So um, so we've got uh, sort of personified as a person. So we see uh, Proverbs 8, it says, do not, does not wisdom call and understanding raise its voice atop the heights beside the road at the crossroad she stands. Uh, and then fast forward a little bit. Yahweh created me the first of his ways before his acts of old. For eternity, I was set up from the first, from the beginnings of the earth. When there's no depths, I was brought forth. And there's no springs abounding water before the mountains had been shaped before the hills I was brought forth when he had not made the, the earth and the fields or the dust of the world when he established the heavens there I was. Um, and so we see sort of this figure who's called wisdom is there as sort of a coworker in creation. Um, and we also see sort of the same thing about glory. So glory is this attribute that we give God. We always talk about giving God the glory. Um, so we've got that. And we've also got uh, glory sometimes appearing as a human, actually. Yeah. So Ezekiel 9 to 10, there's, there's an interesting scene where um, actually the glory of the Lord most often in the Old Testament describes some sort of visible thing. Uh, you'll see like the glory of the Lord filling the temple, the tabernacle, the pillar of fire, the burning bush. Uh, in Ezekiel, we see it uh, sitting on a throne and ruling. And so... Um, Let's see, we've got Ezekiel 9, in, starting in verse 3, it says, And the glory of the Lord, God of Israel, lifted itself up from the cherub that he was sitting on and went to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man who was clothed in linen with a scribal writing case on his side. And the glory of the Lord rose up from the cherub towards the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the courtyard was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And so uh, we see... Um, Glory is, in the Bible, both an attribute given to God and also can appear as this sort of human figure. And so uh, also with the word. So we've got 
Um, you think of word like God speaking and giving his words to prophets uh, and speaking God's word. Uh, but we also see throughout even the New Testament in uh, Genesis 15 that the word is personified as a person. And so uh, especially John 1, you see, uh, we'll see this later, that Jesus calls himself the word became flesh. And so uh, already in the Old Testament, you've got um, you've got ways of thinking about God that are sort of outside of our normal categories. Like we'd usually use attributes to just describe um, characteristics about us. We'd never think of our attributes coming to life. It'd be like saying like, oh, I'm awesome. And then you'd say like, like I'm awesome. And then you'd also describe uh, awesome, just kick that soccer ball. That was awesome. Or like something like that. I don't know why it's used awesome twice in the same sentence, but something like that. It sounds absurd in our today's categories because that's not how we use attributes. But um, all this was preparing people to think about um, how God did not uh, break or did not, uh, the authors were trying to convey that God did not fit our normal categories of attributes. Uh, and we've also got this thing called the spirit of God. Um, so we've got this spirit of God. We, we see throughout the Old Testament that it is both God and distinct from God. And so uh, we've got God doing the creation, um, but we also, if you remember Genesis 1-2, there's the spirit is hovering over the waters. Um, and so we also see in Job 33-4 that the spirit is also creating. And so uh, in this verse, I think, oh no, I have numbers, that's the next one. And so um, we see God sometimes, um, actually a lot of times, whenever there's a prophet speaking the words of God, he'll send his spirit to inhabit people. Um, and it's not like inhabiting the whole earth. Like we think of the Holy Spirit now, it's sort of a specific spirit inhabiting a single person. And we see that in Numbers uh, that says, where is it? Then the Lord went down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took away the spirit that was on him, and he put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit was resting on them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. And so you see the spirit is sort of separate from God, but also God because it's his spirit. Um, sort of confusing, but hang with me. Um, uh, yeah, so he was able to withdraw it from people. So it's sort of distinct from him, um, but he also, it also is the spirit of God, so it's his. And so uh, a good way to think about this is the spirit is always here on earth and how we experience God's presence. So whenever the spirit is talked about in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, it's always this how we experience God on the earth. And so uh, usually in the Old Testament, it was linked with prophecy. So they'd receive the spirit. Um, in Genesis, it was hovering over the waters on the earth. And so uh, the spirit's never talked about in like sitting in heaven or things like that. You also got this category, really weird, the angel of the Lord. Um, if you remember the burning bush account, uh, you've got in Exodus 3, um, there's some really, really weird things that go on in there. So um, the angel is actually, uh, we can go ahead, and, let's go ahead and read Exodus 3. I like that story. Okay, there we go. So Moses went out and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and there was a bush burning with fire, but it was not being consumed. Uh, and Moses said, let me turn aside and see this great sight. Why did the bush not burn up? And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Um, and so there we see um, the angel is the one who entered the bush, uh, but God is the one who calls him from the bush. So they're distinct, but they're both in the bush, 
And the angel is sort of God, but not God. Uh, we also see this in Genesis 48 when Jacob, uh, if you remember, um, wrestled with an angel, sort of a, one of the weirder stories in scripture. Uh, but this is sort of our, yeah, Jacob, it's Jacob, right? I think it's Jacob. Um, yeah, so he sort of wrestled with an angel in the wilderness. Uh, and then after, after that happens, he goes back and blesses his children, sort of at the end of Genesis. And he says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who shepherded me all my life until this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the boys. And so we see him referring to God, then God, and then he sort of substitutes God with the angel and sort of, and at the end, he um, gives the final statement, may he bless the boys, sort of referring to both God and the angel, and he sort of had a conception that they were the same person, but they're distinct people because they're different. And so, yeah, so that's just another category about how, or another another thing that God definitely does not fit into our categories. Like, how can he be both the angel and not the angel of the Lord? And how can he be both the spirit and not the spirit? Just, yeah, this, this don't worry. This whole thing is just meant to confuse you. And blow your mind about the Trinity. <laughs> so if you're not tracking, it's okay. Going to the, the last category. Um, no, maybe, yeah, this is the last category. So sort of this other, another category that does not cleanly um, fit together is the son of man um, from Daniel 7. And so we see from Daniel 7, uh, I'll go ahead and read it. I continued watching in the visions of the late and night and look, with the cloud of heavens, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, the nations, and languages would serve him. His dominions, dominion is a dominion without end that will not cease, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so um, here in Daniel, we have the Son of Man, a human, is elevated up to the heavenly places, which is known to be God's space, and seated next to God himself, given these, uh, given glory and kingship, uh, things that were reserved for God only. And so we see the son of man. Um, he's obviously not the exact same as the ancient of days, which is God here because he's a different person, but he's also God because he's given all the things that God like was should. And also sort of with the clouds, um, people that ride on clouds were thought to be like divine beings um, that was sort of something that the Israelites thought of was reserved for God alone because he was going to be the one who rides on the clouds and so you've got this other figure this son of man who's he's God because he's doing all the things that God should be doing but he's also not God because it's like God's in the picture already so like you've got this way uh, even in the old testament that they're sort of trying to set up these categories of thinking about God and thinking about different things um, to show that God is or breaking your categories, and it's sort of going to prepare people for thinking about Jesus and how he could be God, but not God, but God. Yeah. All right. All right. So now we get to the New Testament. This is probably going to be more familiar to people because um, so a really big thing to uh, understand, because I know a lot of, I think one of the reasons that we think maybe the Jews rejected Jesus because like, oh, we only, we already had one God. Like, 
who's this guy uh, claiming to be God? Um, but I think a lot of the Jews were well aware, probably not the Pharisees. Um, um, a lot of them were aware and they accepted Jesus's claims to be God because they had already had these categories about thinking about God uh, in ways that um, in ways that he could exist in sort of a bodily form or uh, how Jesus could be God, um, but also distinct from God. And so uh, we see that um, Jesus is distinct from God in John 4, where he is walking around with a human body and God was thought to be a spirit. Um, so we see that, I mean, Jesus is probably the most obvious to point distinctions from God because he lived in historical space time. Um, he did things, but then he also, he is God because he could do things that only God could do, like calming the chaotic waters and forgive sins. Um, and his first disciples talked about him with the same language as God's attributes. And so we see that Jesus was called the glory of God. So if we look back to the Old Testament, we see the glory of God. Um, this is one of those attributes we talked about earlier that they would have had a perception of the glory of God being both a person and ascribed to God. And so uh, he's called the glory of God in Hebrews. Um, he was the word of God in John 1, 1. We sort of already went over that. And he was also called the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Uh, Paul refers to him as the wisdom of God. And so we see how they already had this preconceived notion about how God could both be a personified version of that attribute and also that attribute sort of ascribed to him. And so when Jesus shows up and Paul describes him as the wisdom of God, like they, they know and so sort of have categories of how to process that. So um, categories that I think we've mostly lost today. So, all right, the father. So second member of the Trinity. So when Jesus talked to God, he calls him father. And that's why we recall, why we recall God, the father. Um, and that's in the Lord's Prayer and whenever he prays other than the Lord's Prayer, which is quite a few times. Um, and so Jesus experienced the Father as a source of infinite love. Um, and at Jesus' baptism, the Father says, this is my son who I love. And so there's that co-loving um, relationship there. Uh, and we've also got the Spirit. And so uh, it was through the Spirit that Jesus experienced God's love and wisdom. We see in John 3 um, that he has the Spirit without limits. And then uh, just like in the Old Testament, the spirit is how people on earth experience God and us two believers uh, in Christ experiences love through the Holy Spirit working inside of us. And so uh, based on that Old Testament um, sort of category about how the spirit works and how the spirit was from God, but is also distinct from God, um, the father that is. Um, and so they were. Uh, ready to accept the spirit at Pentecost and know sort of how that would work through them in order to spread the kingdom elsewhere. And so to sum it all up, I got this picture. I made the one on the left because I couldn't find a good one that kind of looked like the one on the right, but wasn't really the one on the right. So um, you got Mormon tritheism on the left with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost being completely separate beings. Um, and they're united in purpose. They all kind of live, I guess you can write will there as well. Um, and then you got the Trinity, which you've got these interconnected beings uh, that are both, that both are and aren't each other. And it's super confusing. And I hope uh, your brains are now on the floor and you need a mop to wipe them up. But uh, all this to say, I think the Trinity is very confusing and 
even I'm confused just talking about it. Um, it's something we can never learn completely. Um, but it is something like Job. We'll go all. We'll go full circle here. I'm. Oh no, that's going to take a long time to go back there, isn't it? Just like Job, I think our response to the incomprehensible ability to God is something beautiful, and it should be to um, to sing and extol His work and sort of give glory to God and praise Him for His incomprehensibility. Um, yeah. So look, verse 26, the Lord is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. So Job didn't have a problem with exalting God, even though he didn't know uh, who they were uh, or who he was and how he worked. Um, he was just in awe of how it all worked out. So 